This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic. Blood plasma could be the breakthrough treatments we're looking for. Talked about it before. Now the FDA clearing the way for people to be treated with plasma. The president announced the approval, but some scientists say that was rushed through and maybe this isn't the breakthrough. Uh, he says it is. We'll dive deeper into whether this could end up being effective. We might have a coronavirus vaccine for use in this country before November's election. We'll get into what President Trump is trying to do to make that happen. Doctors have talked about coronavirus reinfection as a possibility. Now there's a confirmed case. So what does that mean for a vaccine? And the medical community here in the U.S. needs all the help it can get. And reinforcements are coming if, if the bill in Congress can pass. Bad test results put a scare into the NFL and the executives just before the season starts. Does this mean we can't trust the testing in this country? So let's get back to blood plasma, plasma, plasma. You say plasma, I say tomato, plasma. Tomato, tomato, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dr. Eric Topol is chair for Innovative Medicine and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Doctor, explain how all of this works. Well, the first thing is to note that when you get an infection of COVID-19, you develop antibodies. So the plasma that's uh, collected from patients who been through an infection will have some antibodies in it. But the second point is, of those antibodies, most of them don't do anything. They're not so-called neutralizing. So only certain antibodies uh, actually have an effect. And so when you give somebody plasma that's collected from patients who've convalesced from COVID, that's giving people some chance of getting some of those neutralizing good antibodies that can help them fight an infection. So the idea of doing this has been around years and years and years, as we've said. It's been done before. It's being done in this case in test phases. What do we know about how it works so far? We don't know too much. <laughs> we had a big study uh, that was used by the FDA yesterday to prop up that there's some type of survival benefit. But in fact, that study of some 35,000 people uh, that was uh, coordinated by Mayo Clinic was a so-called observational study whereby they looked at the people who got, there were no control group. So they looked at people who got it early or late. They looked at in a tiny group of the patients who actually had the antibodies measured later from the plasma to see if it was high or low. And they looked at, you know, age and, you know, all sorts of characteristics. And they came up with that it, it could improve survival. And somehow or other that was translated uh, by the FDA in the press conference yesterday as a breakthrough, no less that there is no evidence and that it improves 35% relative. And in fact, it was mentioned by the commission of the FDA, Stephen Hunt, 35 out of 100 lives of people with sick with COVID, which is completely blatantly erroneous. Is it not also, doctor, a problem that because of the action that the FDA has now taken, in a way sending the signal that uh, this is something, a therapy that doctors ought to at least consider using, will it not make it going down the road more difficult 
to carry out the kind of, of studies that you were just alluding to, where you have a double-blind placebo study, some people get it, some don't, because everybody who is in the hospital seriously ill with COVID-19, they or their families are now going to want convalescent plasma. Right. Well, because of the miscue uh, yesterday from this data-tortured uh, preprint, hasn't even been peer-reviewed or published, that leads to what you're saying, which is much less uh, ability to execute, to conduct a trial, because people say, well, I want the I want that plasma that can be life-saving, where that's never been proven. And it does have potential for side effects because you're giving a biologic substance which can transmit viruses, can transmit you know, an antibody immune response. So we don't even know that it's fully safe, no less that it has any survival improvement. And this makes it harder to get the truth. The good news is that there is a large trial being connect, uh, conducted in Britain, uh, which uh, is way going, you know, uh, going well, we'll probably get the answer from that trial. We won't get the answer from the United States because it'll be impaired to do such studies. The other big issue to bring up is we're coming to a point imminently in the months ahead to uh, start to get a readout on the vaccine trials. And this loss of credibility for the FDA to stand up for science and evidence and data. Now we're really worried that that could happen when a vaccine would get some type of emergency approval. So the credibility in the science is really, really important. Dr. Eric Topol, Chair for Innovative Medicine, Director, Founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. President Trump is reportedly considering fast-tracking an experimental coronavirus vaccine from Great Britain ahead of November's presidential election. It's being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University and is currently in clinical trials. If complications from an emergency vaccine come up, the government has a program to compensate those impacted. Peter Myers is the former director of the Vaccine Injury Litigation Clinic, professor with the George Washington University School of Law. He talks to KCBS's Stan Bunger about the compensation program. Well, it is a compensation program which has major deficiencies. Um, the problems with it are um, that when you file a claim, and again, this we expect a very small percentage of people who receive a vaccine suffer injuries from it, but that does happen. And also the people who are in these clinical trials um, who are seeing whether these vaccines are safe and effective, you know, a small number of those will also have serious adverse reactions. So it's important to have a program that compensates them well, you know, and this program does not do that. Um, you submit a claim on to this program. You have no right to participate in the proceeding. It is a totally secret proceeding. The, the, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services announces its decision. If you lose, you cannot get judicial review. Um, there's lots of problems, and I filed, as you referenced, a Freedom of Information Act request, and they responded to say that less than 10% of the claims which are filed in this program get compensated. So this program was set up by Congress or administratively? What are the roots of it? By Congress um, a number of years ago uh, to deal with countermeasures like the coronavirus vaccine. 
um, but it was created um, with many problems. There are better programs which Congress has created. One is the regular vaccine injury compensation program, the, the mandatory childhood vaccines, the, the flu vaccines, which are given every year. Those go into a different pro- uh, compensation program called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which the petitioners can participate in. It's public. You can get judicial review if you lose, and they pay 75% of the claims. So how did we get here? Is it because we've had so relatively few of these experimental novel vaccines cranked out over the years? I think that's right. And this is a program which is created for these novel vaccines, which was, again, poorly thought out, poorly designed, and we should either amend it, either the Trump administration or Congress should modify this program to make it better or shift these claims into the regular vaccine injury program. Or actually, my preference would be, let's just create a new program analogous to the 9-11 compensation program, which Ken Feinberg, a, a lawyer here in Washington, ran, and people said was very successful, quick, generous, open, um, so we can do a lot better, both for the people who are, you know, engaged in these clinical trials, and then when the vaccines become widely available, the great majority of people we expect are going to benefit, are going to get immunity, but like anything that you take into your body, a small percentage of people will suffer injury on anything, and it's important, I think, that we have a good, open, uh, generous program, not the lousy program, which we currently have. And it can be changed. We have time to do it, and we should do it. Last quick press, uh, question for you, Professor, and that is what, what pays for these programs? Well, there's two ways they've been paid. The current, the, the, the program that the vaccine uh, injuries uh, from the coronavirus now go into, Congress passes appropriations for that. And that's one way to fund it. Have Congress just pass a, pass a bill saying X millions are given to it. Another way to fund it is the other vaccine program is whenever you get like a flu vaccine, you pay an excise tax of 75 cents, and that goes into a trust fund, which pays these injuries. So you could pay for it either way, but we need to do much better and revise the program before the coronavirus vaccine becomes widely available. Peter Myers, Emeritus Professor at George Washington University School of Law. Doctors in Hong Kong have confirmed the first case in the world of coronavirus reinfection. Researchers have suspected it, but now it appears proven. Will we ever eliminate this virus? And what about vaccines? What does this mean for developments? With us is Dr. George Rutherford, epidemiologist and director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health at UC San Francisco's School of Medicine. So, doctor, what do you make of this case? The part that's interesting about this is that they had the genetic sequence of the from the virus that he had the first time he got he was infected and they had the genetic sequence from this new infection and they're very different so that's how you can tell that this isn't just reactivation or something like that as you said we've been waiting around trying to find the first case um i'm glad we we have it now it's in the books and and uh, we've long suspected this is the case there's a lot more work to be done with it uh done uh with this individual to see whether what his immunity may have looked like, whether he had any antibodies uh, uh, to the uh, 
to the receptor binding domain, um, which is the part of the virus that binds to the uh, to the cell wall. Um, but you know, I mean, I think this is something we've always uh, suspected would happen, um, and now it has happened, and we'll start finding, I suspect, more cases, but maybe not as well documented as this one. So I guess uh, my question that follows then, is this a, 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 a good-bad situation? Good, perhaps, because this particular gentleman apparently didn't get uh, either very sick or sick at all uh, with yeah. the second infection. But is it also bad because it does mean that people can now, we know for a fact, it's not theory anymore, get reinfected with this? Yeah, I think, you're, I think you've captured it correctly. The good news was that he didn't have some kind of crazy immunologic storm when he got reinfected. And that's something that actually occurs with dengue fever, uh, which is something we've been kind of uh, at least theoretically worried about. So that's good. Um, You know, but 40 percent of people are asymptomatic anyway. So the fact that he's asymptomatic probably doesn't mean much. The um, the antibody, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, yeah, the antibodies probably waned, you know, for the uh, coronaviruses that cause common colds. Those antibodies only last four or five months. This guy was infected in, um, I believe, April. Uh, and uh, so he, he would have had waning immunity over about four months, which is about it was about right, and got um, and managed to get reinfected, unfortunately. I think the other, so that tells us one thing. That the um, that you uh, that you can get reinfected. That the antibodies probably do wane, much like we see for the coronaviruses that cause common cold. But you're absolutely right that he didn't get some horrendous immunologic reaction um, that uh, made him very sick. So that's that part's good. What does this mean for the development of vaccines? Uh, that we need them. Uh, that we can't <laughs> rely on naturally occurring immunity. Uh, even in you know a place with very high levels of of infection like St. Quentin, now topping out at around seventy percent of the inmate population infected, it's only going to last for a while, and then you could potentially get a second wave uh, wave through. I'd be very slow to generalize about the um, about the fact that this one individual was asymptomatic the second time. As I said, forty percent of people are asymptomatic anyway, um, and it may be that. In fact, if we find a hundred of these cases, that those that you know, on average, people may be more symptomatic. You just can't sort of jump to it, jump to that conclusion from a single case. On the the vaccine, uh, yes, we need a vaccine. But does this indicate that perhaps a vaccine uh, may not be as effective as some people are hoping it will be, or or might need to be repeated at at uh, shorter intervals than some people might hope? Yeah, I I don't think so necessarily. I think that, you know, there, there's some additional work that needs to be done to figure out what this guy's antibody profile looked like, whether he had antibodies to the receptor binding domain, which is what we're trying to raise for, um, you know, for, uh, for vaccines. You know, there's a lot of questions uh, here, but I think your characterization of some good, some bad is, is correct. Now, I will add quickly that there was another story last week, another publication last week, about a U.S. commercial fishing, large fishing vessel from Seattle. Uh, it put to sea with 120, 122 people, 120 of whom had been screened both for antibody and for by PCR, by the nasal swabs, for acute infection before they put to sea. Everybody was negative for the PCRs. They went to sea. Attack rate of 86% came back 10 days later. 
had to come back to port because so there's so many people who were sick. And they went and ran the antibodies, and they had three found three people with neutralizing antibody. Zero of those three got sick, but 103 of 117 people without it got sick. So I mean, that's the other part of this of this story, which is that if you have neutralizing antibody, you may have some degree of protection. Dr. George Rutherford, Epidemiologist, Director, Division and Prevention, Public Health, UC San Francisco. A bipartisan bill in Congress would give doctors here in the U.S. some much-needed help in battling the coronavirus. It would make 40,000 unused immigrant visas available for doctors and nurses who want to come here in order to work. Nearly 30 percent of doctors and nurses in the U.S. they are from other countries. KYW's Carol McKenzie talks to Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons about the bill, but first she talks with Dr. William Pinsky, president of the Education Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. Can you tell me what kind of impact the pandemic has had on this process and getting these, these uh, doctors into the United States? It has had a, a definite impact. We're very successful in getting the international medical graduates into the country to start their training this year. So in the residency match, uh, which comes out in March every year, so March 2020, obviously, as the pandemic was intensifying in the United States, the match came out and we had approximately 4,400 foreign national international medical graduates in the, who were successful in the match. Now, ECFMG is also the only agency that the U.S. Department of State authorizes to sponsor the J-1 visa for physicians uh, to come into the United States for further training. The J-1 visa is a non-immigration classification for visas. It's actually classified as a cultural exchange visa in order to promote, as it sounds, cultural exchange between the United States and the respective countries. And so we sponsor the J-1 visa for the international medical graduates. Senator Chris Coons is from Delaware. He's a Democrat. And as I mentioned, he was one of the first co-sponsors of the Healthcare Workforce Resilience Act. There's a companion bill in the House which also enjoys broad bipartisan support. But the bill is stalled out. And one of the things I wondered was, why are they having such a hard time getting it passed? We have slowly ground down as a Senate to being um, at a point where we struggle to pass even common sense bills that have broad support because a few members of the Senate and forgive me, right now they tend to be Republicans more than Democrats, object. Normally a bill like this would get passed by what's called unanimous consent, which means we take it to the floor, as long as nobody objects, it passes. We've tried, we aren't able to do it. So we've decided as a group of co-sponsors to roll it into the relief package, which as of last week we thought was on track to pass. Obviously now there's an impasse. When we get back into session after Labor Day, it's my hope that we'll be able to move this because it has support from Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. A sixth of our healthcare workforce in the United States is foreign born. And immigrant doctors and nurses play a vital role in particular in delivering service and support to more rural and medically underserved parts of our country. Without them, our healthcare system wouldn't work. And given what a hot point Given what a flashpoint immigration has been for this administration, I'm really grateful that we've got such a broad and bipartisan group of co-sponsors working tirelessly to move this forward. 
Your point, uh, you know, about how much we depend on foreign born uh, doctors and nurses, particularly in rural areas right now, um, plays into or plays into the fear right now that rural areas that haven't been really badly impacted by the pandemic yet are going to be impacted as we see, you know, in this kind of second wave of cases that we're seeing and that they're not going to have the medical infrastructure, the medical facilities or the doctors to handle an, an influx of cases like this. That's right, Carol. There was a mistaken belief early on in this pandemic that it was really limited to the coasts and to big cities. And as we've seen it spread throughout every state, every community in the country, we've seen outbreaks um, in states like Oklahoma and Indiana um, that have lots and lots of rural and medically underserved areas. Um, There are thousands of nurses overseas right now who are appropriately trained and skilled, who've got offers to hire them mostly into rural and underserved hospitals, but cannot get here because there aren't the visas available. What this bill would do is recapture 25,000 visas um, that are currently available but underused for employment and make them available for nurses and 15,000 for doctors. This is about meeting an urgent medical need for the United States. And I'm grateful that we've got bipartisan partners willing to look past the deep differences between our parties on immigration and recognize that this is the moment for us to deliver better public health for the American people. Testing had been going well for NFL players just a few weeks before their season is set to start. No signs of major outbreaks on any teams. But then, but then, 77 tests done at one lab in New Jersey came back positive, impacting 11 teams. That caused a lot of concern. But then the tests were re-examined and... (laughs) turned out false positives. So what does that say about testing in general? How reliable is it? And if uh, they can't get the NFL players uh, tested, how do we get school kids back in the classroom? Dr. Adam Gaffney, pulmonary specialist at the Cambridge Health Alliance, instructor at the Harvard Medical School. So doctor, how do you get so many false positives, 77 of them? And what does it say about those tests? Well, I mean, I think this is just one more example of what's a national fiasco, and fiasco is probably putting it too nicely. Um, This outbreak, you know, started in December. We had our first case in January, and seven months later, we are still dealing with the same exact, completely inadequate testing infrastructure. You read reports about people waiting a week for results, which is basically useless for many people, And, and as you said, even the NFL can't get it right. Whatever the technical reasons for failure are in one particular situation doesn't explain the big picture. The big picture is a complete lack of leadership from the federal government, an unwillingness to use the tools at their disposal to actually create a national infrastructure, combined with years of underfunding of our public health agencies. But yeah, I was going to say, you know, you you can look at this case and say maybe this was a lab problem, right? That there was some kind of cross-contamination or it all got sent to the same place and there was some screw-up at this lab and they all came back. Because 77 is a pretty high number to have false positives in one giant group from all these different spots. But that still doesn't excuse the broader picture where we're still having backlogs and people can't get the tests and and we don't have we don't have surveillance which was the whole idea of part of the shutdown right was to get ready so we could do some surveillance around and see where these pockets were and then go after them exactly right i mean that we 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 bought time with the shutdown um and the idea was when you open back up you actually have the tools you need to detect cases 
and isolate them. And that's what other countries have done that have much more successfully controlled their outbreaks. I mean, just to give you one statistic, um, this month, Germany is doing 115 tests for every positive new case of COVID a day, okay? And we're doing 14. So they're doing eight times as many tests per COVID case. Um, we can't actually control the epidemic if we don't have the tools to do it. And as you said, you can talk about one technical problem here, one technical problem there. That doesn't explain the big picture. But are they need the federal government to, to take charge. But yeah. let me ask you this. Are, are, are the ten, I mean, forgetting, putting aside for the moment the uh, infrastructure for, you know, for testing and contact tracing and that sort of thing. Are the tests themselves, whether they be antigen tests or tests, PCR tests for the actual uh, virus, or even, of course, down the road when people are starting to get uh, antibody testing, blood tests for that, are any of these tests really reliable? Because I've heard, and we've had so many experts on this program from everywhere you can think of, and they almost all question the validity of tests. They have patients who they know have COVID who test uh, negative. They have people who are asymptomatic, but they test positive. They have people who don't test for the virus, but they have antibodies. It's all over the map. I, mean, I think that's a slightly different issue, which is that there is no perfect test. Um, the PCR tests, um, you know, when they're positive are typically real. Um, it is true that some people, um, it's not a perfect test, and you do miss some positives. Um, the fact that some people test positive when they're asymptomatic that's actually just the nature of the disease. Some of us will get this, not know it, and um, have no symptoms. And that's just the reality. So I think that's a slightly different issue. Um, you know, in every country, the tests are not perfect. and There is no perfect test. Um, but um, it doesn't excuse, again, the lack of infrastructure. Dr. Adam Gaffney, instructor, Harvard Medical School, president of Physicians for a National Health Program. Remember when people stocked up on toilet paper? What do you mean, remember when? You know, I, I'm st- I have enough toilet paper to last a century. When I was young and they stocked <laughs> up on toilet paper, I, it's been so like much. six months. Of course I remember. Yeah, I've got so much, so much <laughs> toilet paper, it's flowing out of my ears. And that's not where you use it. <laughs> but remember when people stocked up on toilet paper, bread, and, and baking supplies? Well... Things change quickly in this pandemic. Several retail tracking groups say people are buying up things like solar-powered cell phone chargers, pepper spray, and even personal alarms. So now we're just preparing for a dystopian future, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's going to be like Mad Max in here, and we need our solar-powered batteries. Well, the owner of one... one, I don't even know what a personal alarm is, but the owner of one personal alarm business says more people are traveling now, and they want to go into nature where it might not be as crowded. So she says carrying an alarm gives people confidence. I, I don't. How does that work? Maybe it's just like really loud, and if a bear comes to you, yeah. you just fire it off, and then someone comes to help you. I don't know. If I, if I saw a bear coming at me, I, would, I, I know what my alarm would be. I'd go, oh, my God, it's a bear. I'm going to start Googling. Well, this woman says sales were really slow in March but have grown exponentially this summer. It's like one of those uh, personal alarm is a small handheld electronic device with the functionality to emit a loud siren-like alarming sound. Not like, like, like a whistle? I mean, a whistle is like a personal alarm, isn't I it? I guess you could just get a whistle. Yeah, and if a bear comes or Or like something. an air horn. Yeah, you know. 
Thank God we have toilet paper both saved up. <sighs> well, that was all unexpected. Uh, thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and by the, Stitcher. By the way, if you if you need a few uh, rolls, uh, Mike, I have more than enough. Get a whole closet. Yeah, I can just pay for the shipping. That's it.